0: Ladies kicking assets, uh, Robin and I are super excited to have you here. And we are joined by our fabulous guest, Mark uptograph who I had the honor and pleasure of meeting in Raise Masters. So we are in another group together. Um, he has got a company called Raise Capital. Um, he's got kind of a similar story, and we will kind of dig into that a minute. But he does awesome lives on LinkedIn. And thank you so much for joining us. I I love that you have kind of gone through some trials and tribulations of life and figured things out and have shifted. And I want to kind of dig into that. So thanks for joining us. Welcome.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Robin. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Okay. So you are in New York, right? In Rochester?
1: I am in up, 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 upstate Rochester, New York. Most people don't even consider Rochester upstate. Now, if I tell them I'm in upstate, they think I'm nuts. They're like, that's, you're in a different state. (laughs)
0: Right, that's awesome. Well, I do know, and one of the things that I um, that really kind of piqued my attention and got my curiosity going was when we started chatting. You had talked about how you lost your job and you pivoted and shifted into syndication. Mm. So, can mm-hmm. we kind of talk a little bit about what that looked like and what that time frame looked like? You know, a lot of people talk about you know moving into syndication, but they don't ever really get into um, you know what the t- that time frame looked like and um, people think that it's just an auto- automatic transition, like just going mm-hmm. from one job into the next. And there's really kind of some time and learning curve that goes right. into that.
1: Right. Absol- yeah, absolutely. I was fortunate enough to have started purchasing some investment properties while I was still in college before I came out with a master's degree and got into industry and then ultimately got laid off. So I had a, a good track record of purchasing smaller single and multifamily homes and then um, being the active manager for those properties. Mm-hmm. And when I and got laid off.
2: College? Yeah, I'm sitting here thinking yeah. about who who I, mentored yeah, you? What got you? Let's start there. I mean-
1: yeah College. so you were
2: eighteen to twenty two essentially.
1: well, i was in I was in for my master's. so I had you know gone through my undergraduate degree. I had gone to work for industry. you know, I've always been entrepreneurial and um, but I just never knew about real estate. So when I went back to get my master's, you know, I was a little bit older I was in my mid-20s okay. so I had some ex- I had some good experience oh, yeah. and yeah. Um, I was investing in the stock markets and it was during you know a good bull market cycle where my investments did pretty well but you know I was checking it all the time and you know I didn't really you know it, I it was more luck than anything else, right I wasn't really digging into these companies. I was just kind of following trends and making some money and I could I saw things go <laughs> up I saw things come down. And it just, it didn't seem like a very scalable business model in my opinion. Okay. Uh, so I got into reading some books about real estate specifically and how, you know, over time, real estate really is one of the best asset classes that you can invest in. And so I decided to take action. And that's when I purchased my first single family home in 2008 after the market crash, when okay. every, everybody was just saying like, this is, you're you're being stupid, don't do it. And, you know, I was, that's I'm really That's exactly good
0: at when you move into the asset is when everybody yeah. else is scared. That is when you go in and buy. Mm-hmm. I don't care what it is, that's the time. So good for yeah. you for recognizing yeah. that.
1: And I don't really know what my underwriting looked like when I did it. I was more, you know, going for a benchmark. You know, obviously it was a risk in that, you know, I didn't know exactly how much rent I would get because I had never managed a property. I could look on the internet, but uh, the, the area that I was looking in was pretty repressed as far as rental values. So I could easily see that like on average, the rent was probably like six, 700 bucks for that type of product. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I had a feeling that if I came in and I put my spin on it, I could attract a better tenant and I could get higher rents than I was seeing in the market. So I think that's part of why people thought I was a little bit off in my decision-making was that, you know, I paid 55,000 for a single family home that you know the internet might tell you was renting for like seven hundred bucks, and they're like, eh, it's not doesn't really look like a great investment. You know, you're probably gonna be tight with you have, if you have a mortgage. Uh, I was able to come in, and then you know I added you know at least 10000 $10, dollars worth of value to the property through kitchen cabinets, paints, refinishing the hardwoods, and then you know not including my labor. Uh, so I did that, recapitalized the property and leased it out for nine twenty five, and then by my second term, you know my first turnover, I was up to eleven twenty five. So that really gave me the motivation to Say, okay, this is a really good benchmark. My first one ended up being one of my better benchmarks. And then I kind of checked on both sides, like, okay, I'm going to go towards more cash flow in a little bit riskier of an area, but then you realize that you're not going to hit those rents that you thought you were going to hit and you're going to have more evictions. But then if you go to the nicer area, you're paying a little bit more. You say so you're paying this premium, but you have less evictions. So mm-hmm. I tell a lot of investors like the pro form is just a jumping off point. But really, as you own things and you operate them, you're going to understand better, you know, how they perform. More so than your pro forma might dictate. So, you know, the pro forma is kind of like a back of an envelope for me. And then um, my expertise is where I'm going to come in and say, okay, I'm going to make a buy decision. Even though the pro forma might look a little weak on this, I know that the location's superior. There's, you know, some businesses moving in. Maybe it's some gentrification happening. I'm going to get an upswing on appreciation. So I'll be able to cash my equity back out. And plus, I'll be able to get a boost on my rents where they're going to be higher than what the average rent in that neighborhood is right now.
2: I love how um, you just jumped out there, and the, one of the, the statements that you made that was is powerful in any aspect of our wealth development is you took action. You, you mm-hmm. know, your evaluation of that product evolved through time. But you took action and that right there is the key difference between we all have the same amount of hours in the day, we all have the same amount of time, we can all read the same books, but if we don't jump out there and take action, nothing else happens, you know, and some of our greatest learning uh, moments are from our mistakes and so you've been able to really home that into the rest of whatever's, you know, navigated the trajectory of everything else that you're doing, but you took action at a really young age. So I love that. That's great.
0: Yeah. So when you decided to buy that first property, what kind of mortgage, like how did you pay for that? because this is something that I get asked a lot by younger, younger people is, you know, I really want to get started. I'm not even sure where to go or how to do that. And I I didn't even know we were going to talk about this, but you know, what did that, what did that look like that process to acquire that property?
1: Sure. So in 2008, I went with bank of America and they gave me 90, 10 terms. So 10% down. And they mm-hmm. also allowed me to do six percent seller's concessions. You know, I could check my paperwork just to verify, um, but I'm pretty positive I came out of pocket like seven thousand dollars on the closing. You know, that was all my prepaids right. minus my concessions, which was a really good uh, entry point for a fifty-five thousand dollar house as far as cash out of pocket. You know, today I advise people that are just starting out if they haven't already purchased a home, they might as well maximize their FHA loan, which is going to be their lowest out of pocket they have available. At you know three and a half percent out of pocket to get into an investment, and then I'll also tell them why don't you go ahead and position yourself in a really good area because you're never going to have an opportunity to purchase a nice asset with three and a half percent down except for now with your FHA loan. Right. As soon as you own that, you know your next loan you're looking at twenty five percent out of pocket. So I think I I may have gotten lucky back then that that's what the lending terms were. You know ten percent. Mm-hmm. Um, I know as uh, things have progressed, you know, now I'm paying 20 to 25% down for multifamily or commercial and sometimes even more depending mm-hmm. on the the product.
0: Yeah. And I've been trying to talk my daughter into buying like a quadplex because she can go out and get that, you know, utilize that FHA loan, but then, you know, rent those other three pieces right. out um, so that it will pay for the entire property. So I think that's a great way to get started.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I helped two individuals that were not yet married. And so they each had an FHA opportunity, which they took advantage of on a four unit property. Uh, We orchestrated it off market. You know, I knew the seller from the neighborhood. He was a slumlord. So the property needed some work, but my clients were young and handy and they knew that they could fix it up with a little sweat equity. Uh, so we did that twice on two different properties and they exited within two years and resold both off market to a new investor coming to the market, uh, taking on you know the, the improved property with the improved rents, still getting a good cash flow. So it was a good deal for all parties and they pocketed about $225,000 in profit that they use oh, wow. to launch their, you know, to launch their businesses. You right. know, now they have a, they have a farm, they've got lakefront, um, uh, short-term rentals. Uh-huh. And so they're doing really good in real estate. And it was really those first two FHA deals that set them up for, fu- for future success, to give them the capital they needed to keep investing and, and making smart decisions with real estate.
2: Fantastic. Oh, oh my gosh. Amazing. I love stories like that. Don't yes. you? I just love it.
0: I do. All right. So, okay. So let's fast forward a little bit and, you know, you've, you've been acquiring properties and then I guess when you got out of college, obviously you went into the workforce.
1: Yep. That was the plan. You know, your, your parents tell you go to school, get a good job. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they want to invest in you. Uh, my, my father's very entrepreneurial, so he's always kind of like built that in, but he never said, Hey, go out and be an entrepreneur. You know, he, he was kind of with the mantra that everybody else has, which is go to school, get a good job. Uh, But what I realized early on was that there was the earning potential in the short term wasn't there, right? As a scientist, I was capped. I came in at 70 and if I spent my entire career there, I would still be under a hundred. And if I went into management, that was kind of like a schmoozy chain of just, you know, trying to climb the corporate ladder. And it didn't really seem like it was based on the merit of your work. It really seemed like it was based on who you knew and Mm -hmm. what connections you had outside of the office. So you could bring in government contracts. And I just didn't want to be part of that like brown nosing crew, you know, to, to make more wages. And I really didn't know if it would pan out or, you know, if the company would start shedding jobs, if some of these management positions would go away because they really don't add much value to the organization. You know, the real values comes from the scientists, Mm -hmm. uh, whether the managers are willing to admit it or not.
0: Sure. So what um, let's move forward. So at what point in time, like how long ago did you, were you, did you lose your job?
1: Oh, that's a good question. It must've been at least 10 years ago. I'd, I'd, I'd have to double check but probably around okay. that time frame, Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's at that point in time, you said, yeah, I'm done with this corporate nonsense and I'm doing, you know, real estate syndications or whatever full time.
2: Yeah. How did you go from, you know, you were in single family homes. So let's use mm-hmm. that benchmark 10 years. What made you decide to switch into syndicating? Because a lot of people don't really quite embrace that for some time.
1: Yeah, so I live in a market where there's so many investment opportunities that make sense. I knew right away that I would never have enough money to take down all the deals that I wanted to take down. So I knew it would be important to surround myself with other investors that were well-capitalized that wanted to see some of these opportunities that I was seeing in the marketplace. So after I got laid off, you know, we had to decide what I was going to do. And I didn't want to have to rely solely on my passive income to pay my bills because that would squash my passive investing um, build, right? I wouldn't be able to build my unit count because now all of those funds that I was earmarking to go back into that business were now paying for my food and my uh, my housing. I didn't want to do that. So I really knew that I needed some active income to supplement my my W-2. And then also I wanted some to contribute back into my passive investing. Yeah. So for a brief stint, I went and I worked for my father because, you know, I told you he's an entrepreneur, he's a mm-hmm. trucking company and his, his, uh, thing that he had in his head was that like, his employees are going to have to respect me. He, the boss's son can't just come in and have some high highfalutin job, uh, getting paid right. a lot of money. He had, I had to work my way up. So he literally had me on a gas well pad, you know, bright and early every morning, you know. Crack of dawn, when these guys are getting ready to drill and I would be backing up tractor trailer trucks to get them to hook up they had the sand and then the sand would go down in the well to push the uh, the gas back out and I would stand next to a diesel engine all day they call them hogs there's these things that like shoot the sand down a conveyor belt to get it ready to process down into the hole and I would come home every night you know after like 15 16 hours of doing this and I would have just the most massive headache you can imagine from breathing this carbon monoxide all day. And I told him I'm like, dad, like no offense, but like this is this is not cool. Like uh-huh. I've got a college degree. I'm educated. Um, I almost got ran over by a truck when it was like raining and pouring and, you know, they've got all these mats and they've got these sandbags to keep the mats down Well, I tripped over a, a a because I was walking backwards right next to the truck where I could have easily just been crushed. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I'm having all these red flags and I'm like, look, I, I get it that you want me to, to like work my way up and show my worth in the company, but this is not going to work for me. I need, my health is important to me. And even just like doing something where I feel like I'm, I'm actually adding value and I'm, I'm more than just telling this guy to back his truck up. Um, so, you know, I, I said, don't pay me. I worked for him for like a month. I was like, I don't want any wages. But what had happened when I was down in this Marcellus Shale region was um, I saw the activity of all these people going to the county and looking up the land deeds, right? To figure out who had the mineral rights on all these properties. Okay. And um, I was like, okay, there's all the, there, I mean, it was packed. It was just swarming with people checking all these papers, you know, cause everything was paper and books and they're going through it. And I'm like, this is interesting. I'm like, I wonder what the foreclosure market's like down here. Uh, if the gas is so important, then like maybe the property is important too. Well, I went and checked out one of the foreclosure auctions and there was nobody there to bid. It was just like the bank. And, and no bidders. I'm like, hmm, this is interesting. And I had had some experience with foreclosures back in Rochester. I think we had maybe purchased one uh, up here, and it was completely di- different down in Pennsylvania. And I had to kind of get the lay of how that whole process worked. You know, it was very archival. I'd have to go in and like print paper. There's like a list that would be hanging on the uh, office door that I'd have to go take a picture of. And then to find some of these properties was almost impossible too, because it was like rural route 1247. Nine eight four, and it's like there's no signs. So right, and then, yeah. you know, and finding the surveys and finding all that stuff. Well, I ended up finding a parcel that I could tell was like in. It was really in a nice spot as far as where the Marcellus, because you can see the Marcellus on a map if you Google it. And I'm like, this is prime. This isn't like a really high concentrated gas area. And it was ten acres, and it was a house that a woman had paid two hundred fifty thousand for, and um, she had one of those loans that were originated back when you know they would just underwrite anybody and she couldn't, she couldn't afford it she couldn't pay it. She never paid it. She got, she lost it. Um, So she might've paid a little bit of a premium in that market that was booming and anybody could buy a house. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I saw the potential and I went in and I I formed a partnership with my father and I said, why don't we do this? I don't have the cash to buy a hundred plus thousand dollar foreclosure, but I, I can do the legwork. I can do the groundwork. I can find it. I can help us identify it. And, you know, if we get it, you know, we'll also, we'll lease it out so we can get some rent coming in on the residential side. And so that particular house, you know, she was a mess. The whole basement was filled with dogs. And I'd tell you, there's like an inch to two inches of just like solid, solid feces and and dog waste that we had to like scrape off. So I I threw away so many sets of clothes just being over there, but we ended up acquiring that foreclosure and, and going through the, um, eviction process with her to get her out and getting it back online and then leasing it up to the gas company directly, who then just put their service workers there for a number of years. So we would just get checks right from like Chesapeake. And, um, you know, we got a huge premium on that because everybody wanted that house. It was four bedroom, two bath. It was a log house with a great view, 10 acres. Um, so we got a really good rent and they, they drilled a well across the street, you know, within the first year that we owned it. So over the, you know, the last 10 years, we, we really got small checks because they're only going to take gas out if the gas price supports their, uh, you know, their need for that gas. Otherwise they're going to keep it under the ground. Right. And, uh, store it. So we knew that with our, with our, uh, projections based on my, uh, digging through the internet and trying to figure out, you know, how much we could make on this investment. We just knew like, okay, we're going to make money. We just don't know when it's going to depend on the gas checks coming to us. And so for 10 years, we got really, really small checks and it was kind of like a joke. My dad would just laugh like, yeah, this gas, whatever. Um, but when the price spiked not too long ago, we had a couple months where we just had ridiculous checks where like, he he sent me a a copy of the check to look at. I was like, what is this? Like, is that for like a year? So he's like, no, that's one month and um uh, we were just really blown away so that you know started our relationship as more of partners versus employee employer mm-hmm. and we've had a really good relationship um, following that trajectory
0: wow yeah, i didn't know that you did that with your dad that's amazing so is he part of rays
1: he is not part of rays no so um you know we did a lot of investing early on 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 smaller smaller deals but uh, he really doesn't have the time to put into the corporations, so he was more of kind of like, he knew he was acting as a lender more so than as a partner. And eventually, you know, after I had built various companies, you know, I probably have like thirty or forty different LLCs. Uh, we decided that he would take more of a, a lending role versus a equity partner role because you know he he could see that I was doing a lot of the legwork and he really wasn't contributing, and he felt like it wasn't fair for me to have to do that. So. Um, that's kind of how, you know, I paid him back early on by making him equity partner and then sourcing the deals, uh, getting them leased up, doing all the, doing all the hard stuff. And then, you know, he could sit back and collect checks off of that. Now we've got a structure where he's getting paid based on his lending versus based based on equity in, in the property. And then I can be free to run my business the way that I want. So if I want to refinance a property and deploy that capital towards other things, I'm free to do that without really having to explain to him the inner workings of how I operate as a real estate professional.
0: Right. Right. Well, that's awesome that you acquired that property and got the mineral rights because a lot of properties in Texas, you can buy the property, but the mineral rights don't transfer. So that's awesome that you got that. Um, Well, so what is your primary focus now as you've kind of transitioned through these different phases?
1: Yeah. So I am the active developer and general contractor for a 16,000 square foot office conversion that we're turning into 10 luxury apartments in downtown Rochester. Uh, So that's my project for 2023. Uh, In conjunction with that, we're moving our operation out of that building and into a new building that we're just wrapping up here in the city. Ah, uh, so that's taken up a lot of my time. It's given me a lot of valuable insight into the development process and working with lenders on, you know, uh, a construction loan that converts to a perm loan. So um, that's what I'm doing now. But I've also launched my syndication company, raise capital. So I'm underwriting deals. I'm focusing on things that I know really well. So I still have opportunities that come to me in Rochester. You know, like a I've got a 54 unit a uh, distressed seller that i'm working with you know we're not to terms on price but um i'm confident that he knows he's in a position where he's he's got to move on because he's just bleeding cash so mm-hmm. as soon as he understands that like i am the buyer there's not there's nobody else that's going to want to do this huge heavy lift for him and i'm happy to represent him as his broker to try to find another buyer but i'm just giving him the reality of the situation that he's in so Um, You know, I'm working on deals like that where we'll come in, we'll add the value, we'll get the thing leased up and, you know, but we're not going to overpay on the acquisition. So even though he purchased it for a price that he shouldn't have, you know, he kind of uh, trusted his broker when he bought it and it was fully occupied, but we have a feeling in hindsight that it was some kind of scam where they weren't real tenants and as soon as he purchased it, you know there was nobody there paying That's
2: awful uh,
1: so he's owned this fifty four unit then it's almost completely vacant He's got about five tenants in the entire thing
2: oh and uh, he's just he yeah he's cash.
1: he's bleeding cat and it needs it needs a ton of renovation so if if he comes to me, which he has for management i I just play I say, look, your assets, not in a condition where I would even consider taking the management you know it's it's not something that we want to put our name on. Right. Um, if you're willing to spend, you know, twenty thousand dollars per unit plus some curb appeal money and some money for the commercial space, then yeah, we can talk. But if you don't have that capital or you don't want to deploy that capital, then no, I don't want anything to do with that building. Mm-hmm. So, uh, oh. so that's kind of kind of my focus. You know, um, just keeping my ears to the ground for opportunities. I I tend to look for things that are off market.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so I've
1: yeah. got a. a Another seller where I've, um, you know, it's fun to find older people that have have like been there, done that. So this gentleman I'm working with now, he's 87 and he's Uh amassed a huge portfolio of investment properties in a class A neighborhood. And when he was buying them, you know, the prices were reasonable and he could cash flow, but he hasn't really updated them but the, the location is so good. It doesn't matter, right? You're always going to get a tenant. You're always going to have high occupancy, but his rental rates are pretty suppressed compared to what he could achieve if he were to go in and put in some shaker cabinets, some fresh fresh paint and you know maybe update the bathroom. So my uh, pitch to him is like, yeah, you can, s- you can sell it to me for a multiple of your rents. So that's fine, but we got to keep it on the lower side to give myself room to be able to improve the properties, get a higher rent and then take it to the bank um and then i think he would also be open to some um constr- some creative finance because he doesn't want to get whacked with this massive capital gain right. either so i think we can structure a win-win where he helps me and i help him at the same time
2: uh uh-huh. uh uh-huh. that's love amazing that. yeah yes really? i do too wow
0: well, that's really cool that you have access um, to kind of some of those off-market deals and people are bringing those things to you. And I think we're going to see so many, we're already starting to see a lot of distressed properties and people that bought things over the course of this last few years, especially as, you know, things were just going up and up and now they're finding themselves in hot water. So I think there's definitely going to be a lot of opportunity out there for sure.
1: Yeah yep, so I'm trying to get positioned. So over the next two years, I can seize those opportunities and I've got my my contacts ready to go. So I'm going through the investor list and really um, making those relationships really strong where I say, hey, look, I'm not in a hurry to buy something. I want to buy the right things, but I want you on my side when we find something that we can pounce on it and really seize that opportunity. Okay. So I haven't I haven't created a blind fund, but i've I've been considering it. Mm-hmm. I do have a number of investors that I think would come into a blind fund given my track record with them.
2: You know, Mark, I love the fact that you're talking about just some basic fundamentals, going back to your investor database and just following up with those folks and seeing really where they are right now, what their needs are, and just making mm-hmm. that heart connection, you know, mm-hmm. it's so critical so that when you do have a project, they are, you know, listening for what you've got out there and you're you've heard what they're looking for. So I think that's, that's a, a great piece of advice for all of us, no matter where we are with our businesses, no matter how successful, never forget the basics and the basics are our investors and what are their needs. And so you're really doing that. So I think that will take you far, far, far uh, on your wealth journey and just pouring back into the lives of others, really. So I think that's great. I like that. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, let me, okay. So I have a a quick question. So what is probably one of the greatest challenges that you've had to overcome through all of these learning experiences and, you know, starting off, you know, back here, you know, 12, 14 years ago to, to now?
1: That's a really great question. I think it will come down to personnel. Right, So when you first start out, you're very sensitive to how much money you're spending on payroll and you want to get a good uh, bang for your buck. So you probably end up hiring somebody on the cheaper side. That's not always the best idea, right? Sometimes we just have to suck it up and pay a higher price, maybe even pay a premium in the marketplace to get the right people. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think over the last 15 years of just building a business from scratch and having zero people on payroll... Uh, The hardest part is managing people and dealing with people, hiring people, keeping them happy, knowing when to fire people, um, knowing who not to hire to begin with. There's a lot of times when your business is growing, you have a dire need to get people in the organization because otherwise you're not going to be able to provide the level of service uh, that you're accustomed to providing to your clients. Uh, So the need is real to get a body in but sometimes you don't have the right body. So one of the key things that I started doing after reading uh Emyth a number of years ago was just always having a marketing channel for employees. Even if I had absolutely no need for an employee because we just hired, you know, three or four and we just we were totally staffed and we couldn't afford another employee, I'm still going to market for people because when you find that real exemplary. I can't talk today. The Perfect employee, <laughs> right? when You find the perfect employee, even if you're completely staffed, you just hire them because they don't come around that often. Right? right. And, you know, my father says, Hey, there's always somebody coming in. There's always somebody going out. There's somebody leaving at any given time. So that's just part of the, the business. Um, I want to make sure that if I find somebody that's awesome, I grab them and, you know, I'll, I'll figure out how to generate, generate more revenue to pay for that person after I have them on staff versus not even, you know, taking the, taking yeah. advantage of that opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I've had a few key people where, you know, my, my staff specifically in accounting is like, Hey, I don't, you shouldn't hire this person right now. And I'm like, um, hiring them. Mm-hmm. I had the interview with them. They're going to be here and chances are they're going to dance circles around somebody here. And then if you're still having an issue because we haven't Im- improved our revenues, then somebody else is probably going to have to go by Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Pretty yeah, cool it's Yeah, yeah, we had a, a guest recently that talked about you know having the right team in place and how um, you know it really is specific to the type of properties that you are managing and taking care of that, you know, the different types, he, he kind of broke it down into, you know, Walmart and, you know, Nordstrom, you know, people right. taking care of those different types of properties. And so, and it really doesn't matter what you're doing, having the right people in place are really those key factors that can really help you grow and, and accomplish what you're trying to do so much better and so much faster. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I remember that
2: interview and that was a good one. Yes. It's <laughs> a great yes. one. So true. But I love the fact that you said here, um, when you bring them on, even if you can't quite afford them, you'll figure out another project, another way to tweak your business line so that you can, because mm-hmm. people, great people are unicorns, you know, right. they're very difficult to, to acquire. Okay. And if you find them, grab them, you know, yep.
0: Yeah. So Absolutely. when you when you said you you'll find another way of coming up with some income to pay for that, what does that look like?
1: Oh, there's there's a mountain of different ways depending on how your business is structured, right? So I'm running um, three different corporations. I've got a general contracting firm, mm-hmm. I've got a management firm, and I've got a real estate brokerage. So there's a lot of crossover where I might have one person that works on three companies. I might have one person that works on two, one person that just works on one, you know? So in my line of work, uh, as far as generating more revenue, it could be as simple as going in and changing our fee structure, um, or it could be the output of work that we're doing, right? So um, lease renewals would be an easy example, right? Sometimes when we're so busy with lease ups, because all of our Management stuff happens between like May and let's say August.
2: Ninety mm-hmm.
1: percent of the volume is going to turn over during that time period, and if you also have lease renewals that are happening at the same time, you know they might go to the to the back of the line, back of the queue, while we're doing the lease ups to make sure we minimize vacancy. I can easily right. just say, okay, you know, I hired you to do X, Y, Z. But at this point, because revenue isn't quite there yet, I just want you to go through and do all these lease-ups for me real quick. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a very simple task. It generates $75 per renewal. And it's something that, you know, I've got them in the door. I've explained to them the vision. I've shown them what I think ultimately their position is going to be and where what I want them to be to be doing. But at this point, you know, just jump on board and, and help me out a little bit so I can get us to the point where you can really fully take on that role. Um, you know, it, it might mean that you're doing a little bit of X, Y, Z in the meantime, while, you know, we're churning. And when we get back to our slower season, you know, a- after we go out of the lease, least lease up peak, then we can really figure out, okay, let's re integrate this role and take some things off of this plate, some things off of that plate, And then figure out, you know, where, where are we looking revenue wise and where are we looking, um, as far as, uh, capacity to generate more revenue, it, even if it's easy as just like completing the lease ups or, or whatever, there's a lot of simple things that can be done.
2: Mm-hmm. Very creative, very creative.
0: Yeah, this little, totally uh, makes me think about, um, that book who not how, so whenever you're trying to accomplish something, it's always about, you know, you don't ask how do I make this happen? You know, who do I need to, who do I know that can help or who do I need that's going to help me?
2: Yep. Which is absolutely true. Well, Mark, we are coming to an end with our time. I just really want to thank you. You have like really shed multiple golden nuggets for our listeners. How can, how can our listeners and viewers get in touch with you?
1: So I'm at raise capital, R-A-Z-E capital.com. And then my cell, if they want to reach out is 585-314-9790, 585-314-9790. If they shoot me a text, that's usually the best way to communicate with me. And then I'll get over my Calendly link and we can schedule a time for a call.
0: Awesome. I love that personal awesome. touch.
2: That's a personal yeah. touch. That's very different than many of the folks that we talk with.
1: Yep. Yeah. I've, nope. I've done a lot of, uh, marketing over the years and you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe how many people are just, you know, they're in this and they spend so much time working on the, the perfect marketing and the back channel and the CRM and the drips and all this. And they, they, they don't, they don't close and they get the lead and then it just goes nowhere. You know, I've. I've sent so many emails to people where their follow-up has just either been non-existent or just like so far late that it's even today, I got an email response from an email that I sent in January and it was somebody, you know, it was early on when I probably right after the raise masters thing. And I was um, thinking that I wanted to be an LP uh, versus a GP, you know, just to do, do an LP deal and I sent this individual, I was like, Hey, you know, I came across you on this podcast X, Y, Z, and I like what you're doing. I like what you're investing in. Um, you know, I would, I want to hear more, you know, I'm a prospective investor. And then today, this morning, I got a response. I'm like, I didn't even remember who it was. I had to go back and read my original email. Um, but, um, yeah, I think part of the secret to, (laughs) (laughs) The secret to closing uh, anything is just being real with people and being able to deliver on what you say. So you know, if I get something coming in and I'm going to react and I'm going to do the follow-up and if I don't have the capacity to do the follow-up, I need to have a system, right? I need to have people, I need to have who's in my pipe and I got to have a good system for those who's to be able to deliver on all this incoming stuff. So I think really setting yourself up for success means finding those who's, And then, um, you know, I, I treat everything like ping pong. So if something comes at me, then I just hit it right back. Right. I don't want to wait to hit it back. If you wait to hit something back, then the person is just left wondering, did they hear what I said? Are they going to respond? Is this the right person? Why is it taking so long? So it's so simple. You just hit it back. You don't even have to have the answer. You just have to say, Hey, I'm going to get the answer. And then, you know, if you, if you can't get the answer yourself in a timely manner, then you have a system where that answer is gonna get answered and it's gonna move on down the chain. And you know that the people that you put in place are gonna handle the same way, like ping pong. So that's oh. why I try to teach everybody in my organization, like we're ping pong players.
0: It's such a, sim- it's such a simple practice, but so effective. Yes, Mm
2: -hmm. it really is. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. And um, I love the personal touch on the phone number Just shoot you a text. Uh, Certainly go to your website, but um, you're going to respond. And so I think that's, that's key. Well, thank you so much again. And we are Robin and Courtney with Ladies Kicking Assets. And you can always like and subscribe to our channel. Please share this podcast today with your friends. I think Mark has shared such great um, takeaways today that just anybody can really implement in their in their line of business at any point in time. And you've been very successful with just the basic strategies. So really, thank you so much for sharing those things.
1: Thanks so much for having me on, guys.
2: You are welcome. Thank you. you. Have a great day.